everybody. It's June 7th, 2020, and I'm recording this from Houston on my phone. I don't have my usual audio set up with my laptop and an external microphone, and you're bound to hear some extraneous noises, And but hopefully uh, the sound quality will be good enough, at least so you can uh, understand what I'm saying here today. I'm located in Houston, Texas, visiting my in-laws. We come here every other week to help take care of their grocery needs and keep them company. Otherwise, I'm normally in Arlington, Texas, so we commute back and forth. Uh, well, I want to talk about some current events that are happening. Uh, we were in and still are in a pandemic with COVID, COVID-19, excuse me, <clears throat> but recently, um, as you know, with uh, the Minneapolis case of George Floyd uh, being killed by a police officer who was video recorded by witnesses, fortunately. And he placed uh, his knee on George Floyd's, Mr. Floyd's neck to the point where he couldn't breathe, lost consciousness, and eventually died. And uh, now that there are protests, not just nationwide, not just in Minneapolis, various cities, various states, but also in other countries. Um, so I want to talk about all these things. And for you as my students or for anyone else, how to maybe talk about how to deal with this. But I don't want to sound like I'm talking about this as some sort of authority of any kind. I am a psychology professor, so I'll talk about some issues that I understand based on my education, but also just as a human being, as a person, as an American, what uh, what's going through my mind, okay? So these thoughts represent are my own, is what I'm trying to say. I'm not a spokesperson for my employers, even if uh, what I say they agree with 100%, that's not the point. These are my own views that I'm trying to express. So let me see if I can record this while also looking at my notes on the phone at the same time. My computer keyboard went kaput. Some keys are sticking, so I'm relying on my phone and a tablet to get my work done. And uh, let me see if... Yep, yeah, okay, looks like it's still recording. All right, so let me take a look at my notes here. I have my uh, talk, I guess my podcast today, dealing with several things. Uh, first of all, just uh, my own reaction to the George Floyd event. Talk about Black Lives Matter. Sort of the politicizing of it. Talk about a lot of other concepts as well. So sit tight, this is going to be a long podcast today. Talk about what white privilege is and what it isn't. Talk about racism, individual racism, institutional racism, the history, how that relates to our lives today. Talk about what some people call mob psychology. You know, the looting behavior and the burning that we've seen. And... Uh, also, you've heard some police chiefs and mayors claim that 
people who loot and commit violent acts are not from here, wherever they're talking from. The Houston police chiefs have said it. I heard the uh, mayor of Minneapolis say the similar kind of thing. So I find that kind of interesting, even though there's not much evidence to support their claims. Uh, could that be an emotional reaction? You know, talk about the psychological principles behind that kind of thinking. And also, why do police officers act with such brutality or aggressiveness or excessive force? We just recently saw a 75-year-old man. Uh, I'm trying to remember where this occurred. Ah, it's slipping my mind. Buffalo, New York, I think, where police in riot gear were marching down, and there weren't that many people. I guess they just haven't gotten to the, where they're getting yet. And a 75-year-old man was standing there and probably wanted to sort of stand his ground, you know, facing the oncoming wall of policemen and women. And a couple of police officers just shoved him to the ground. He fell backwards, and apparently the initial reports, you know, were that, or that he tripped. So if it weren't for a nearby, I believe it was an NPR correspondent or cameraman type person, well, I guess it's not a cameraman, but, you know, an employee, happened to record it on his cell phone. And I'll talk about the importance of technology with regards to this movement. And how do we take action? That's what I'm going to conclude with today. You know, it's, it's we're sitting at home, isolated, in semi-quarantine, Right, social distancing, but yet these emotions can be overwhelming. We want to take action, we want to do something, assuming that you support the cause, right, and that you want to support uh, and fight for justice. So, I'm going to talk about all those kinds of things what you can do, even if you're at home, even if you're not able to physically go out and attend a vigil or a protest or a demonstration. I'm not going to call these necessarily protests. I think initially they are, but more and more they're walks, they're demonstrations, okay, um, in support for this issue. All right, let's get started here. So yes, we're dealing with COVID-19. Um, I've got a couple of 80-year-olds that I'm taking care of, that we are taking care of. One's my father, one's my father-in-law, and my mother-in-law is in her upper 70s, all in great health, okay, under normal circumstances, you know. They might even be considered in better health than me, especially my dad, Tai Chi instructor with his retired friends in the Dallas area. You know, so he's all cooped up at home, and I'm glad we're staying with both sets of our parents at this time. I hope you're doing the same, or at least able to do the same. I feel lucky that I can. A lot of my dad's peers, who are all very successful in their own right, they own businesses, they're highly educated, some are doctors, they have children who are doctors and lawyers, you know, very what we call successful in terms of their livelihood, but they're all busy elsewhere. They don't have the lifestyle where they can pick up and come and stay with their uh, 
And, and that's pretty much representative of a lot of American families, I guess. So with my uh, online teaching being flexible since we lived overseas, we don't have a home of our own, in a sense, in the States. And we were in the middle of planning our next move before COVID hit. And now we're here, spending time with my in-laws and my family. So that's fine. That's just where we are. Um, and for me, I can talk about my own reaction is that uh, I'm 53 at the time of this broadcast. So when I was born the, in the late 60s and 67, the civil rights movement was at its peak right at that time. And there were a lot of marches and demonstrations and, you know, Martin Luther King's assassination and all that civil rights uh, laws being passed. And I think for most of my audience, my students, who happen to be younger, you know, you came into this world and all you have to go by is your own life experience, what you've experienced so far. And, uh, and I think if you're an international student who may not have relatives here for a generation or two that have lived through American history, all that's happening now is maybe quite a shock to you, a shock to your system, a shock to your core in terms of what you believed the place that you lived in was fair and just. And now you're realizing maybe it's not so fair and just. I think we all have uh, a cultural bias and ethnocentrism a very pro-American stance on things. But if you think about how we look to other countries, um, we have a long way to go before we reach the point where we feel like we're on top of things in the world, where we have some sort of moral authority to be able to say that, hey, you know, your country should support human rights like we do, but yet from an outsider, does it look like we support human rights? Does it look like we have a good record on that? Right, so I think if you come from a life experience not directly experiencing racism because you're young or because of the neighborhood you lived in or school you went to, or because you're an international student and you come, you know, even if you're from, uh, even if you're from an African background or a black background, right? Those cultural differences from those countries is very different than the American experience. I've talked to many colleagues in the past who, for example, from Nigeria. And their skin tone may be very dark by sort of American standards in terms of what we normally see of African Americans and so forth that they're kind of shocked by how they may be treated in America. Because even in Africa, they were never treated that way. People may see differences based on religion or different ethnic roots, but not so much on physical appearance. So... To be judged by physical appearance is quite a shock to them. All right, and I guess I can uh, go through my notes here. 
So, what the heck is Black Lives Matter? And I think there's kind of a change now. I think there are more and more people, and especially you'll see leaders of various industries and politicians of all backgrounds coming out in support of it. But when that phrase trended because of Ferguson uh, and uh, the case there, I think it was still a very divisive issue, right? Because I think some people would say, well, yeah, of course, Black Lives Matter. I support that. And for some other people, usually who are not black, may be taken aback by that and say, well, what do you mean black lives matter? Does that mean that other people don't matter? Does it mean that policemen don't matter? So then they come out with all lives matter. And blue lives matter. And let me explain why I feel like those other hashtags, if you will, are misguided. I think when a group wants to point out an injustice that this group is experiencing and want to talk about it, it doesn't neglect the fact that, of course, we should believe that every life is important, even policemen. We rely on them. As much as we dislike the police brutality, we would have social chaos without law and order, right? Without a police force, without a fire department, okay? Without a legal system. Um, so we cannot exist without that. But yet part of that law enforcement system is not functioning as it should, not safeguarding people's lives as they should, clearly treating people in a dehumanizing way and not respecting them. And so I think when it's very upsetting to me personally to see people hold up signs at rallies as a counter-rally, well, why, why does everything have to be so political? Why does every um, utterance or protest have to have a counter-protest? Right? Why is everything painted with these blue and red brushes instead of looking at the situation as it is and looking at it from a human point of view? I think a lot of this has to do with the inability to empathize with another group of people. You've probably heard people call out other people for using the race card. And to me, as normally someone who's not a person of color who says that, you would rarely find someone who is a person of color say, oh yeah, yeah, my cousin's using the race card. You know, And I feel like that's a deflection. I feel like that is a rationalization 
so that that person doesn't have to acknowledge that perhaps a group of people were treated unjustly, right? Um, if this was the case about racism against Asian Americans, and I put out a sign or hashtag says Asian Lives Matter. Yeah, thank you, neighbor, for fixing your fence right now. But go ahead. If you can hear the knocking sound. <laughs> I'm not stopping. I'm not pausing this no matter what. Um, so if I created that hashtag Asian Lives Matter, chances are I would get a blowback. I'd say, well, all lives matter. Right? Blue Lives Matter. And, uh, and I think... Um, even way back when I had this discussion when I taught a multicultural psychology class talked about the issue of college campuses and why there are so many student associations based on ethnicity why is there a black students association why is there a Chinese students association Korean students association Filipino students association and so forth why are they even there and as white students they may see well why don't we just create a white students association and you've probably heard this argument from some people, maybe in the media, claim, well, you know, white lives matter too, right? Again, uh, my point of view here is that it, that is very misguided because that overlooks the reason why people are creating this group. If minorities, let's say in a university setting, were fully accepted, treated fully as equals, never faced any kind of mistreatment or discrimination or felt ostracized or put down by instructors or classmates or staff, right? Then there may not be a need for those students to create that student's association. Students often create those groups for fellowship to create a sense of belonging as a reaction to not feeling a sense of belonging in their college environment. And the reason there wasn't, I went to University of Texas as an undergraduate, so I would say to my students, well, you know why there wasn't a white students association at University of Texas? I, I said to them, there actually was. It was called the University of Texas. Right? That's the default color. So I think I'm glad I, we've been to a couple of uh, protests this week, rallies in Houston. One was in support of George Floyd at the at City Hall in downtown Houston. And there's a big rain, and it wasn't the one with 60,000-plus people. It was uh, maybe the day and a half later. So it was a much smaller group, and we were very cautious. We just stayed on the boundary. We didn't get into the mix. And and I wish they uh, have to create some better type of sound system for these protests because we have a hard time hearing the speakers. But it was very moving. And we also attended one that was focused on black women that black women's lives matter as well, especially with the case of Breonna Taylor, 
There's a similar case in Fort Worth, Texas, in case you don't know. I believe her name was Tatiana Jefferson. She was in her house. She's a college student. She was babysitting, taking care of her nephew, I believe. So it was at her sister's house. And a neighbor, who's also African-American, saw that in the middle of the night, her front door was open, called the police, and it was considered what they call the welfare check. It wasn't a call for a burglary or break-in or any kind of violent act. Just a welfare check, just a check to make sure someone was home, let them know their door was open, right? And so instead of the police driving up to the front door with their lights on, making it real obvious that there's a police presence coming to the front door, announcing their presence, find out if someone's home. Instead, they parked a couple blocks away, walked up to the house, and one officer went to the backyard, opened the gate, went to the backyard, and used his flashlight to look inside. And of course, if you're a homeowner, not knowing that the police are coming, right, and I believe she and her nephew were playing video games at the time, you know, she felt threatened. She got went to the window to take a look. And of course, every policeman's uh, in that situation, their excuse is that they thought their life was threatened and the person was going for weapons. So that she was killed, shot through the window inside her own home. Right? And, oh, the neighbor who called the police initially felt so guilty, as you can imagine. Right? Because you trust the police. You want to trust the police, that what you're doing is right, and it ends up in a tragedy, right, so, yes, I support Black Lives Matter, right, um, because it's just the right things to do, right thing to do, it doesn't negate the fact that policemen's lives matter, it doesn't negate the fact that white people's lives matter, right, but one speaker made this great case, and you've heard this before maybe, is that how can we have all lives matter if black lives don't matter, right? Would there be even be a need for black lives matter if they weren't treated the way they were? The same reason as all these minority student associations on every college campus. If they're all treated as an integrated and welcomed by the student body, by faculty and staff, by the college culture, by the Greek culture on campus, as true equals, then maybe there wouldn't be a need. But then what's wrong with forming these groups based on Students don't have the right to celebrate their cultural heritage, right? Isn't it true that you find someone, even a stranger, who's of the same cultural background as you? You have a lot to talk about. You have some foundation in common, right? It's called fellowship. We all have it based on interests, based on our backgrounds. It doesn't automatically mean that I find any random... Taiwanese-American who happened to be born in Canada, <laughs> who's a psychology major, that, that he and I will be best friends. No, it doesn't mean that at all. Okay. It just means that as a group, they will have some support.
Okay, they can support each other. Not necessarily in a hostile environment. It's a lot better now than it was 30, 40 years ago. But just for the sake of fellowship. And actually, most of these student groups, if you're white, you can actually participate. No one stopped, and it's not exclusive like that. Uh, my friend who was in school on the West Coast went to some of his gatherings. There's always like a few white folks in the Chinese Students Association. It's no big deal. You want to learn about other groups of people, join them. Right? But this... Uh, okay, that's all I'm going to say about the Black Lives Matter movement here. Let me move on to some related concepts here that you've heard thrown around that I think... And I'm going to give you the point of view from psychology. White privilege. Yeah, that's a polarizing term, right? Um, I think minorities understand what that term means, but I think a lot of white folks don't understand what that mean, be, what it means because of the word privilege. I think people associate the word privilege with some sort of wealth, maybe a certain level of status. And so, someone could claim, well, I'm a homeless white person, why do I have white privilege? So this is not really well understood, and let me try to explain it the best way I can. And in a sense, I have that sense of privilege as well, living in America. So what this privilege means is that being white in America, or at least if you're, you look white, that you have a set of built-in, I'm not going to say advantages, but you almost have an, a set of invisible protections that in your daily life you take for granted. Right? You can go for a walk around your neighborhood as a white person and may not have any kind of fear or anxiety from strangers calling you names. Okay? For a person of color, even for myself as an Asian American, I have that in the back of my mind no matter where I go in a public place. That it can happen because it has happened. It has happened before. So that's one aspect of a privilege. That's a privilege that an average white person does not have to experience that. Right? Now, it doesn't mean that there are no white people who are bullied because of their weight or because of their interests or because of their gender identity. Of course there is. Okay? But what I'm saying is that as a whole, there are certain things that you can take for granted being white. It doesn't mean you get... Well, sometimes it does mean you get paid more doing the same work compared to someone else, a colleague who's not. The statistics are out there, right? The inequities are real. The labor, un labor statistics, Department of Labor, they're not just making up numbers to make themselves feel good, right? You can feel safe applying for a loan, assuming you have similar credit as someone else. You can assume that moving into a neighborhood that, you know, you'll be accepted. At least you won't stick out. Right? So 
So that's that's what those privileges are. When you're stopped by the police, right? Do you feel the need to put your hands out the window right away on the dash? Do you feel a sense of anxiety that your life might be threatened? There's a good example of this, uh, again, back in Fort Worth, when people spoke out in support of Tatiana Jefferson, who was shot at home. I believe it was a white woman who said that, you know, a similar, very similar situation happened to her. Someone called the police about her house because her dogs were being loud. It was at night. And again, the police didn't come through the front door, didn't knock. They just came to the back. She noticed that there was a flashlight in the backyard in the dark. And she yelled out through a window, who's there? And the person yelled back, it was the police. And she said that the first thing through her mind was that, gosh, you know, my dogs could have been shot. And you know why that's called white privilege is because she said that for Tatiana Jefferson, for black folks, their first thought might be, am I going to get shot by the police? Right? And the public health studies are fairly clear that in many poor minority neighborhoods, the stress of being poor, the stress of this anxiety, this daily threat that people feel takes a toll on their health and mental health. Right? The public health statistics are very clear about that. That all things being equal, right? growing up black in a black neighborhood causes more health and mental health problems. Right? And we can talk about incarceration. The rates are just alarming. Right? The statistic you may hear the most is that America, we like to think of America as a big country, is really not that big, population-wise. We're only 5% of the world's population. But yet we make up 25% of the world's population of people who are imprisoned. So one out of four people imprisoned in the world is an American. And that the odds of, and this, I got this from a documentary, of a white person ever being incarcerated in their lifetime is 1 in 17. And for black men, it's 1 in 3. Think about that. What can you think about that in your lifetime you have a one-third chance of having or experiencing? It's a huge percent. All right, so that's white privilege, um, individual racism. I think whenever we talk about race, a lot of people focus on individual racism. They focus on themselves, their personal experience, other people they know. Uh, I think most people can deal with individual racists. That's not the problem here. It's institutionalized racism. So hopefully through documentaries or just through reading through your history books. And uh, most public libraries now have already, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Curated a set of books to help you understand. I was, I was shocked that even the cable service here at my in-law's house, Xfinity, has a set of recommended films that you can watch. And Netflix, uh, and I can't assume everybody has it, but they have quite a few programs that are very good as well to understand some of the history. Uh, 
civil rights history. And institutional racism is more uh, insidious, okay? Uh, and we are not divorced from our history. Okay, for all you young people and international students and recent immigrants, you know, you're landing into a country and what you see is the legacy all the way back from slavery to Jim Crow laws, right? To actual governmental policies that allowed racism to occur, such as redlining, right? So when you see segregated neighborhoods, it's all based on this. It's all based on economics and also based on legal policies. Even laws regarding who can be a citizen throughout our American history has changed over time. It's not just whether you're born here, but it has to do with your skin color as well. May was Asian American Heritage Month. There were some good documentaries on PBS that talked about Asian American history as well. <clears throat> so, focus on the institutional racism. So is, what hap is what's happening in the police departments institutional racism? It's possible, right? You know that with any corporate structure, any kind of organization, the tone of the leadership trickles down to the frontline workers, right? Um, during this pandemic, how well each grocery store handles social distancing, protecting their employees and the customers, depends on that manager. We have a Kroger, I'm calling you out Kroger, store in Arlington, Texas, where it's very clear, and I spoke to an assistant manager there, that they minimize. They don't think it's a big deal. And there are many people on social media in our neighborhood who go to that store and talk about how there's just not social distancing taking place. So, it all depends on the individual uh, manager. So let me talk about, uh, so that was institutional racism. I'll talk a little bit about the mob psychology and how people perceive what's happening with the uh, riots and so forth. Um, I thought it was interesting that some city leaders and police chiefs would automatically conclude that, without evidence, that, uh, oh, amongst our peaceful protesters, the ones who are looting and damaging cars and setting things on fire, they're outsiders. They're outside agitators. Well, that could be true. There's not much evidence of that based on arrest records. According to one of the local news uh, stations in Houston, they, they look at all the arrest records and find out who these people were. The vast, vast majority were local folks. Don't just assume that criminals are the ones who are acting and committing criminal acts. If you look back to documentary films about the 92 Los Angeles riots and the looting that occurred, these were everyday people in the neighborhood looting. Okay. Um, you'll see a lot of language referring to people who act violently as thugs. And sure, you know, one individual 
smashing a car window, setting a building on fire. Yeah, that person may be a thug, but oftentimes what you'll see is that that language of the word thug is used to generalize to everyone who is protesting. Um, you'll see people post on social media that, oh, I heard a protest is going to occur at this city hall area, blah, 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 and they'll tell people, don't go. Right? Um, be safe. You don't want to be with the thugs. And so, in our experience, we saw families. There were young people, older folks, people of all ethnic backgrounds, in a very peaceful protest. Uh, and if you notice those acts of violence usually take place at nighttime, like at the very, very end of the night where the curfews are done and all that, and something sort of snaps. So yes, there there may be people who are inciting it, but then everyone else who f tags along, who follows along, and piles on, those are acts of de-individuation. De-individuation, okay? Um, so what is that? That is a phenomenon where groups of people, in large groups, right, are taken over by the group behavior, and they lose sight of their own individual sense of morality and individual responsibility and kind of go with the flow and act with the group. There's a strong conformity aspect that occurs, right? And so what this is saying is that anyone of any background is capable of doing those things. So, if a city leader and police chief doesn't understand that sort of mindset, that that phenomenon can, can happen, and they only judge actions based on one's internal qualities, right? They're committing a dispositional attribution as part of social psychology. That is, we attribute someone's behavior based on their internal qualities, not based on external situations, right? Then, of course, we're going to see see that peaceful protesters are good people, people who loot are bad people, right? And that's totally neglecting the power of the situation, where maybe one bad person creates a spark, breaks a window, and then a dozen others, two dozen others, a hundred others follow. And those 99 followers may not be, may not have criminal personalities. But they're overwhelmed by the power of the situation. Does that mean they're not individually responsible? Of course they're still responsible for their actions. Um, let me talk a little bit about in-group and out-groups. Right? In social psych, it's very clear that you arbitrarily divide two groups of people, even if they don't look different at all, and just slap labels on one group and slap another label on the other group, they'll find ways to dislike that other group and like their own group better. It doesn't matter what it is. Think about it in our everyday life. High school teams, right? There's no difference between Lamar High School and Arlington High School where I grew up, right? We all live in the same town. It's just two schools, but yet they hate each other's guts, right? In Texas, there's no real difference between those who go to Texas A&M and those who go to University of Texas at Austin, but yet there's a sports rivalry and we hate each other's guts, right? To the, for some people. That's an example of in-group versus out-group bias. And uh, so 
Now that we have skin color, it's something a little bit more salient, something that's a little bit more obvious. Uh, people speaking with an accent, people who look different, right? Clear boundaries between in-groups and out-groups, maybe social class, neighborhoods, right? A fence can create an in-group versus an out-group. This in-group bias is so common that we favor our own group and dislike the people in the out-group. Okay? You talk about individually, you not liking another person, your school not liking the other school, this country having a conflict with the other country, can really be boiled down to that. Us versus them. Blue lives matter, black lives matter, right? Really, is there a difference? Other than the organization they're with? Aren't they just all people, perhaps living in the same neighborhood? And then they put on the uniforms and suddenly they're the enemy? Right? Now, recently, um, my daughter, my daughter's really wanted to watch a lot of documentaries about civil rights and also psychology, and she, she saw that there was a Philip Zimbardo Stanford Prison Study uh, movie. It's a docudrama with uh, actors. And basically it was a simulated prison where just young people, some college students, recruited for the study. They flipped the coins. Some were playing the role of a prison guard, and some were prisoners. And then all hell broke loose, all within really 24 hours, but it lasted six days where these prison guards, who are never trained to be prison guards, who don't have any personality, real differences than the prisoners themselves, remember it was just a flip of a coin, they, some of them acted with extreme abuse and brutality against the prisoners. Right? Even in a simulated environment. And so the reason that this study became so well known and made a career for Philip Zimbardo, even though he acted very unethically in that research, um, so I guess we can call it a notorious study, was that the roles we play, right? when an officer commits brutality, is it based on his fundamental being? Is it him? Is it her? Is it something about the officer? Or is it something about the role of the officer that pushes this person to the edge of that behavior? Right? During the Iraq War, Abu Ghraib prison, right? Prison guards abuse the prisoners. Okay? There are men and women in that role. So are these psychopaths who just happen to be in our military? Are these psychopaths who just happen to be in our police department? Or does the role, does the uniform, does carrying a gun and wearing a badge somehow releases that aggression in some people. That's what happened in the prison study. Not all prison guards were sadistic, but a couple of them were. Now, a lot of you have heard of implicit bias. What is that? Well, again, in social cognition research, they found that oftentimes our prejudices, what we've learned over time, become automatic thoughts, automatic reactions. When when we're faced with certain people and certain faces and different physical appearances, 
we've programmed our minds to be automatically anxious and fearful of a black face versus a white face. Right? And explicitly, consciously, maybe we don't think of ourselves that way. We like all people. But in a split second, right, that bias can still be there. Doesn't mean you're racist. It just means that we all have this sort of bias based on our media consumption, based on our cultural upbringing, based on our lack of experience with people who are different from us. Right? I think a good example of that is if you're in an elevator and then for a split second someone new walks into that elevator, for that split second, do you feel relaxed or threatened or anxious based on the physical appearance of the person walking into the elevator? And if you think of yourself as one of these, uh, you know, open people who are not racist and, and all that, then, uh, then you do flinch a little bit when somebody walks in, whether they're tall, whether they're black, whether they have a tattoo on, right? Does that influence you? Those are called implicit biases. And usually through a particular technique, like a computer program, you can actually tap into those. Now the problem is, how do you deprogram that? Okay, And I don't have enough time to talk about that. But the last thing I want to talk about here before I talk about taking action is uh, the notion of colorblindness. I hear this a lot. I heard it from one of my best friends during graduate school. He said, hey, Jack. I don't see you as Asian, I just see you as Jack, right? And I thought, well, that was very well intended, but what does that really mean, right? You know, being an Asian American, being of Taiwanese descent is a very important part of me. I speak the language, my parents are from there, I love the food, I love the culture, it's a big percentage of my being as well as being an American. So if, when someone says that, and believe me, people say this and think this, right? Because they're trying to reduce bias in their minds. Like, okay, I'm not going to be biased. I'm not going to see color. And then what they do is, because that usually comes from a person who is white in America who says this, a person of color will rarely say this to someone else or think this because they know that that cultural background of theirs is an important part of their identity. And if you're black in America, that being black is always reminded, you're always reminded of it, good or bad. Okay? Usually bad. So yeah, even if that black person wants to live a colorblind life, just like that white person saying, hey, you know, I'm going to treat everyone equally. I don't see color. But yet, if you're reminded every day that you're black, you know, maybe you're a black, you're female, you're a lawyer, you walk into somewhere and someone at a hotel counter and someone says, oh, can you take my bags? Right? Maybe that person is not overtly racist, but what is that? What do we say to that? Right? When someone sees you as automatically as a person of lower status based on the association of your skin color. Very many influential, successful black people have these experiences still. Doesn't matter what kind of suit you put on, what kind of car you drive, right? 
that bias will still be there in some people. You can have the opposite reaction. You have a nice car, people, oh, how'd you get that nice car? You must be an athlete or a singer. You can't possibly be, you know, a lawyer or a doctor or any of the other professions. Right? We don't make these associations. Right? So, colorblindness really is another misguided, maybe well-intentioned way of accepting diversity, but not really accepting diversity. You're ignoring diversity. You're being blind to it. So if one's colorblind, what color do you see? You only see white. Because for an average white person, their whiteness is not always a salient factor. It's not something that plays a part in their everyday lives. It's not a huge part of their consciousness, necessarily. Unless you're white, living in an all-black neighborhood, right? then every day your, your whiteness is very salient. It's like, oh yeah, I'm the token white guy here, right? But if you live in a majority white neighborhood, in a majority white school and all that, then the differences between you and other people are based on other things, interests, based on other social cliques, but not based on skin color. So it's easy for that person to say, I don't see color, because in their everyday life, they don't see color. They see the, uh, you know, the geeks, the jocks, the chess club people, right? So I actually told my friend, you know, that, uh, you know, that's kind of well-intentioned, but I am who I am. I am what you see, right? I fully embrace my identity. Right? So for non-white people in America, we can try to integrate as much as we want into the white world, but we're not white. Right? We're always going to be perceived as something different. And for Asians in particular, we're often perceived as being foreigners. That's why we get the old go back to China thing from people. Just a year ago, we are at a national park. We were greeted by some other tourists who were senior citizens, saw us walking around and just put up their hands and said, Konnichiwa to us, as if we are Japanese tourists. And I said back to him, because, you know, I'm tired of not saying anything. I said, um, well, actually, where I come from, we say howdy. You know. And then he starts to roll his eyes and says, oh, you're so, why do we have to always be so politically correct? Right? Oh, I can go on and on about that phrase, political correctness. I'm not sure if I want to go into it for now. Okay. Taking action. I think for my daughter who's 17, she, for her, you know, just having these overwhelming emotions, this acknowledgement, aware, new awareness of, of injustice in America and the racial history of it all, you know, it was a very emotional thing. It brought her to tears. She wanted to take action. She goes, let's go. I found these marches. Let's go. So we went to two, but we're going to have to curtail just because of COVID and we have seniors in the house, we have to cut cut back on that. Um, and told her that we can focus our efforts in different ways, not just being out in public amongst thousands of people. And let me talk to you a little bit about 
what kinds of things we're doing, and maybe you can do the same if you feel like you cannot go. Now, if you're a college student finishing up a quarter or a semester, you know, talk to your instructors. You may be at the point where you can take an incomplete. You know, the college is not going to reset their deadlines, so the deadline's a deadline, right? But the incomplete grade option is basically where you've completed about 80% of the course, and some emergency happens late in the, late in the class, near the end, that interferes with your ability to finish the course, and you tell the instructor you want to take an incomplete, they say, okay, they put an I for your grade. doesn't affect your GPA. And then you have a set amount of time, once that semester or quarter ends, to complete what you have not completed without any penalty. So it's sort of like you just freeze the class as it is, you tell the professor you want to consider the incomplete, and then you arrange deadlines after the fact when you are ready. Usually it's one semester's time or one quarter's time, but each college's policies may be a little different, so look into that, or ask the instructor to look into that. Okay. And if you need time to go protest, if you need time to uh, make signs, um, to be involved, go do it. I wholly support that. Okay. Um, and if for some reason you're part of that group that really doesn't get it, why is it such a big deal? Why are all these thugs just out there protesting, looting? What about the police, Blue Lives Matter and all that? Then I, I'd really encourage you to really learn. I encourage everyone to watch some documentaries, get a history lesson. This is not just about one event. It's not an overreaction to one event. This is a boiling point of decades, if not hundreds of years, of oppression. Okay. So, just be careful out there and do what you need to do. Okay. Okay, I think I've covered everything in my notes, and I'm going to break my phone's ability to record after having doing this for about 55 minutes now. Okay, this is Dr. C. I'll talk to you later. Be safe out there. there thanks for listening to this podcast today can you do me a big favor um, just so that this podcast gets heard by more students of psychology and other people interested in the field uh, go to apple Podcasts and put a little rating there if you like and uh, a brief uh, review okay and you can also contact me directly using the links in the description whether it's twitter or email with any suggestions or feedback that you may have to make the show better and uh, if there are any topics you want me to talk about, I can add them. And if you want to support me by buying me a coffee, the methods are listed in the description as well. Again, thanks and have a great day.